Can you open up to Exodus chapter 28? If you're a visitor, what you've done is you, you've come among us hope to celebrate in baptism or you've just been invited today, but we're, we're in the middle of a long process where we walk pretty slowly, uh, but, but studying deeply the entire narrative of the book of Exodus. That's what we do in this, in this church, is basically just pick a book and go through all of its chapters and lines and verses and study what goodness and meat of the gospel God has for us on the bones of these passages. Now, you're finding us in Exodus chapter 28, and this is a, a passage, and I'll just give a moment for the excitement to die down after I tell you. It's, it's, one, it's two chapters about the clothing and inauguration ceremony of the Israelite high priest. Come on, is that why you got out of bed this morning? You wanted to know what they wore. It goes, it goes from the, his headpiece to his underwear. Everything about his washing ceremony and the lot. Now, I, I promise to uh, do my best to make it relevant, to make it uh, uh, clear and, and, a, and a show of the gospel, but that's, that's our passage today in Exodus chapter 28. If I can summarize as clearly as possible the central message uh, of, of our time here this morning, it is this. We have been made in the image of a very good creator. But by nature and by our own choosing every day, we are terrible, terrible sinners. And that while we are broken from fellowship with God, and while we are guilty in sin, yet there still remains in every single one of you and I a longing or a sense of, at least a, a conscience that tells us we were made for the eternal, that, that in our sin, while we're trying to enjoy our flesh and do whatever the heck we want, we are in fact rebelling against our creator God. And, and, and God, this is the story of the Bible, that God in his love, not because of your worthiness or what we have to offer, but in God's own love, he decided to come down into our existence, share in our experience, take on our reality and live as human so that he might die a death in your place and for your sin. So that he might be for you what you ultimately and absolutely need, which is a representative. The Bible uses this language of a mediator, uh, like a lawyer or an advocate who will rush into the courtroom, have a discussion with the judge and the other uh, uh, prosecuting lawyers to, to see if they can hash out a deal, to see if we can uh, settle this out of court because you're guilty. Before God, you're guilty. And if you want to go to heaven like you want to, if you want to avoid hell like you want to, if you want to answer the inner longing that we all have, which is to be with God, which you want to, you need somebody to go in there before you and hash things out because if you meet him on your own terms, you'll be judged and thrown out into the darkness of hell and judgment. This is the message of Jesus and this is his accomplishment, that he has come to us to then go before God for us on our behalf and win a way into God's presence again, to discharge of our guilt, to deal with our condemnation and to open the way to be back with God. The message of Jesus is do not try and meet the judge on your own terms, you will be damned. Meet him instead, settle out of court in other words, Jesus lived without sin, died for our sin, and then rose without sin. He had to live in heaven, and he calls everybody, whoever you are, he calls everybody. And the Christians gathering here to worship Jesus, this is why we worship him. Because we are unworthy, we have been redeemed sheerly by grace. So we gather to worship him, and to glorify him, and to read his word, and be upbuilt by him. Now this whole message 
long ago, that 1,500 years before Jesus came, this whole message was foreshadowed. The fact that you need a representative before God. The fact that you're impure, but somebody might be pure enough to go to see God and speak a good word for you. This whole message was foreshadowed and echoed in the Old Testament system, which we call the, the priesthood. The fact that there were some set-apart men who would represent God and represent man and go into the tabernacle, the, the holy place of God, and they could represent you and minister on your behalf. And that's what we study today. The clothing, the accessories even, and then we'll touch on the inauguration ceremony and the sacrifices of the high, priestly, uh, of the high priest and the priests after him. So if you've got Exodus chapter 28 in front of you, look to verse 1. I will be not reading all of chapter 28 and 29. We just don't have the time. If we're honest, we'll say, nor the inclination. But I will describe its message, message nonetheless, and you can go and read the fullness in your own time this week. But this is the, uh, I will be skipping certain verses, and I'll alert you when I do that. If you don't have a Bible, you can just read on the screen behind me, and it will all be represented there. Hear now the word of the one true living God. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a cloak, a, clo a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Verse 6. And... Now he starts going specifically through each part of those clothes pieces. He shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine, tw fine twined linen, skillfully worked. Verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Verse 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment, in skilled work, in, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall make it. Verse 17. You shall set in it four rows of stones. Look at verse 21. They shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel, and they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. Verse 29. Aaron shall then bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Verse 31. He shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue, 
Verse 33, on its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. This would function like a, like a doorbell. You don't rush unwelcomed into a king's presence. You ring a bell, you wait for the scepter. Well, with a disembodied, invisible God, the high priest would wear bells to announce his humble presence before the king. Verse 36, you shall then make a plate that could otherwise be translated flower of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of the signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban of, by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. Verse 40. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make for them for glory and beauty. And you shall put, on them, uh, uh, you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. The end of verse 43. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now then, chapter 29 goes on to describe a seven-day process of sacrifices for Aaron and his sons, and then sacrifices to consecrate the clothing, and then sacrifices to inaugurate the priesthood in celebration, and, and, and they would take blood and put it on the altar, and then take some and put it on the, the earlobe and the finger and the toe of the priests to symbolize a full consecration and atonement for sin. And then they have daily, uh, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> daily sacrifices and of bread and wine and meat. And some they burn, some they eat. A whole seven-day process to consecrate these men from their sin and set them apart wholly to the Lord. Now, chapter 29, verse 43 is where I'm reading now. And this will be the end of our reading together. Yahweh says, of the priesthood and of the temple, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. Amen. Wouldn't it, just looking at the end of chapter 29 there, where God says, I will consecrate them. I will consecrate the tabernacle. I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to me after a seven-day process where you thought you were doing the consecrating. You just gave thousands of animals so much gold. You offered your best fine-twined linen. That's hard to read 70 times in one minute, just by the way. You gave everything you could so that you together as human beings could elevate and consecrate, set apart to God a priesthood. And then at the end of chapter 29, in a whole week of ceremonies and making the ornaments, God actually says, the only thing that can make people holy is me. You don't actually contribute holiness. You contribute the sin. You're, you're doing all of the, the metal work and the design and all of the process, and you're going through the processes, but it's actually God himself in a single moment as he comes down and fills the temple who actually makes anything holy. That tells us that as we study the clothing and as we look at all the parts, don't think, well, first of all, don't think Christian dress code. 
Just not, not our, not, I know there are some groups out there that will wear the robes and they think that's very holy and they'll care about the linen undergarments or whatever. Just not at all the dress code, all right? But, but as we're reading it, we're supposed to see in it a symbolism. It didn't achieve anything. It didn't make Aaron holy, but it all symbolized something for them. And as we look at it, what we can see is an echo and and a direction sign pointing to something beautiful about Jesus. So the first thing we're going to look at as we consider the ephod, which is just Hebrew word for like a chest vest piece, and the breast piece is something that hangs over his shoulders and sits on most of his chest, or the sash that he wears, or the tunic, which is basically just a a long shirt that a lot of the hipster pastors wear that come down to just past the knee and and are made out of one piece of uh, fine twined linen. And then they had a checker coat that went on the outside, and of course a a tunic, a a, a turban on the head with a gold piece on the front. Let's, Let's consider how, first of all, the point of the priesthood was to represent God to the people of Israel. There's certain things we can look at in the construction of their outfit and their ministry that, is to, that, 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 that screams to the people of Israel that the priests are, they're not really one of you. They're meant to represent to you the power, the glory, and the beauty, and the holiness of God himself. That's why in verse 2, Moses is told that the, the clothing that you put on the priests, they are to be holy garments for beauty and glory. These are divine words. In other words, they're holy garments. You can't duck out to the servo in your nice priest garments. You can't wear it to the footy game or to a birthday party or for a dress up at Halloween. Not for common use. This is just for use in the tabernacle or the temple because it's wholly set apart to God. It was also to be beautiful. They were to be for beauty so that as people looked at this wonderful, gorgeous, majestic outfit, they were reminded of the beauty and the glory of God. And they were to be struck with splendor and awe, maybe even fear, as they looked at somebody so holy, beautiful, and glorious. And in that way, they were representing God. It wasn't about glorifying Aaron or his sons. It wasn't about pointing to them and how good they could look. It was about pointing through them to God himself, which the last verse of our reading this morning emphasized so that you know that I'm the God who saved you, and I live among my people. One of the ways that we know that they were representing God is that the color system of their whole, of their whole outfit was actually made to match the inside workings of the tabernacle. So they had gold on them. They had purple and royal blue and scarlet crimson and fine twined linen, and all of those things matched precisely the inside of the tabernacle so that they really did look like the picture of heaven that they built. They were, they were really just extensions of the tabernacle. You come to meet God, you come to the tabernacle. You come to see a priest, you're coming to God. When you come to God, you have to come through a priest. So they really were just extensions of the tabernacle. And in that sense, in a careful sense, they were, they were extensions of God's presence himself. But also another sense in the fact that they were representing God is that they were not, they, they were not chosen by men. They were, they, were, they were elected by God for this purpose. The, the one tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel were the Levites, the sons of Levi, 
And only a, a, a subsection in that, a family under Aaron, he would be the head of that household, and all those sons under him, they alone could work in the temple. So all the Levites would do holy things in the whole land of Israel, but the, the, uh, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, they would work in the actual temple itself. They were not chosen by democratic vote. It was not a matter of who the people thought were more holy. Actually, can we, can we remember back to Genesis when Levi's name was cursed? Because he, in rage at the rape of his sister, goes with his zealous brother Simeon and kills an entire town of people for the judgment. And so, so they go, oh, you're sons of violence. You won't have an inheritance in the land. And God flips the curse into a blessing by saying, you won't live with all the other people. You'll live with me. So the sons of Aaron were called in this way, not by democratic vote, but by divine fiat. He chooses who will serve him. And in these ways, the priests of the old covenant were to represent God to the people. No one had ever seen God. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Aaron, to a degree, made God known to them. But also, they were to represent man. They were to represent the Israelites. So, so they represented God with all their beauty and holiness and glory, yes. But their job was to minister to the people and represent the people back to God. They, they, they would no, not be very good mediators. They would not be a very good go-between if they were entirely uh, 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 only representing one side. This, this is what we call a... a, 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 a uh, injustice in the legal system. If you, have a, if you have a lawyer who is best friends with the judge and gets you to sign the, the dotted line and you're stuck in prison and you're rotting away and, and he goes into the courtroom and he has beers and whiskeys and cigars with his mate, the judge, and, and months later visits you again in prison and goes, I'm so, I totally forgot you. Um, he said best we can do is a 20-year slap on the wrist. You okay with that? Uh, anyway, next, uh, next client, please. Right there, you're being cheated out of the just system, which is meant to be that your lawyer will argue your best case. Your, argue, your, your lawyer will, will, will love you as a neighbor, and so do everything he can for you. The priests would not be very good priests between God and man if they only entirely represented God. They also needed to represent mankind and bring their needs before God. And so, in this sense... This is why all of the gold and the linen and the scar, everything they're wearing, even though it represents God, it was donated by the Israelites, wasn't it? You can say, I'm not in there, I'm not in the tabernacle, I'm not wearing the gold, but that's my gold. That's my linen that was donated. It's being taken in there for me on my behalf. So, so their clothing was holy, but it was still taken from among the people. And even they themselves, they were, God didn't send an angel down to be a high priest. God didn't create out of the dust some kind of Nephilim, angelic, superior, un inhuman, uh, un you know, sinless being to then act as a go-between between God and man. He, he made them humans. He selected sinful Levites, sons of Aaron. Some of them get killed in a couple of chapters because they commit some horrible, horrible sins. So, so just normal humans being consecrated because in that way they were to represent the Israelites as a fair representation. This is also why they had to be consecrated. There's an entire chapter, and like we said, seven days and a whole lot of money spent on trying to set these guys apart to serve God. 
Now, there's two ways of thinking about this. Bob is over here thinking, gee, look at this whole ceremony. Just watch the blood and the gold and the candles. and the, They've spared no expense. Look at how holy these men are with this enormous consecration ceremony. And there's Tom over this side because he's way more critical. And he goes, hang on. They're so consecrated. They're so holy. Why does it take seven days and thousands of liters of blood to make them holy? The consecration ceremony was not a celebration of their greatness. It was, a, it was an insult to their sinfulness. It was saying, look at what is required for you to just walk inside of the cloth metal tent. Imagine if you had to meet God face to face. Imagine if you had to actually meet the holy God of the universe face to face. What blood would have to be shed then? No bloods of bulls and goats would ever suffice that. So, so they're being selected from among the people to remind the people, and, and then they're being consecrated in front of the people to remind them they're just ones of us. They're just like us. They are precisely the same nature as us, yet they're going between us and God. In another sense, they were to represent mankind or represent the, the Israelites because they had their names written on the high priest's chest. On the, 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 the ephod, the, the chest vest piece, on the shoulders were two large onyx stones, probably black onyx stones. And, and what they did was they were told by God through Moses to engrave the names of the Israelites into those stones and then fill it with gold filigree. So they're, they're these beautiful, ornate, probably quite heavy, symbols on his own shoulders that every time he goes in to minister to God... He is ministering for man. That the Israelites' load is on top of his shoulders. That he's carrying their prayers inside to God. He's carrying their guilt on his shoulders as he goes to make a sacrifice. Their names were upon his shoulders. They were also over his heart. We're told that in the breast piece, the, the chest plate that sort of hung over his shoulders and connected to the ephod with gold rings, then instead of two stones, there was 12 stones, 12 beautiful, precious, different stones. And on each one of the stones was written one of the tribe names of the sons of Israel. So that in other words, the way that we should think of this is that every single person, even the non-Israelite servants, and the in-laws who joined the Israelite people by marriage, the youngest to the oldest, every single person of Israel is represented on the heart and the chest of the high priest as he goes into the holy place. You may never, in fact, unless you were a, a son of Aaron, you would never go into the holy place. Yet, as long as the son of Aaron carries your name, you are going into the holy place but you're going by covenantal representation, not physically. You may never go in, but on his chest, as he carries your load on his shoulders, he is carrying you in and he is representing you to God. So they could say, before the altar of God in the tabernacle, I have a consecrated high priest. And while he is in there, I am with him. And no one else can tell me I'm not allowed in God's presence because my representative is in there. That was the faith of the Israelite according to God's high priestly system. Well, 
If you'll allow me, we'll stop our study of the Israelite son of Aaron high priestly system, if you allow me, and we will instead switch our thoughts to how this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you happy to do that? This is a song that we just sung, unbeknownst to me, as I wrote this sermon, that tells us that we have such a high priest, the Son of God, the perfect Jesus, who is in heaven on our behalf. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. In other words, if you've never secretly, if you've never understood what that line means, (laughs) while Jesus is there representing me, no tongue, no angel, not even God himself, because Jesus is there by God's promise. No one, no, no devil, no accuser, nobody at all can ever tell me, get your assurance out of heaven. Get away from God. Flee from his holiness. You don't belong there. As long as Jesus in heaven stands, no tongue can bid me to depart from God's presence. I am there by union and communion with my representative, the high priest. And so, Hebrews 8.1 says, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. This is Jesus. And in the same way as the high priest represented God and represented man, in the same way Jesus represents God, And he represents man in a way that the old high priest and the sons of Aaron simply never could. He represents God because he is actual, truly, real God, God's essence and God's nature, God's eternal person come down and adding to himself human nature. Now, now just don't worry at all if to you that is mind-boggling. If you think, I must have missed something because that sounds impossible. Oh, it is. Is. It is the wonder of wonders that only God, the creator, the eternal, the wise, marvelous, powerful God, only he can design this and then actually pull it off. But God, the, the, the son of God, God the son, has, has come into our being as, as, as a sinless person in Jesus Christ so that he wasn't just, he wasn't just God, if we can use the high priest imagery, he wasn't just God walking around in human threads. It's not that he's, he's a God sort of spirit and he's just embodying a, a human skin suit. That's not, God, that's not Jesus. Jesus entered into, from, from a single cell in his mother's womb, conceived of a virgin by the power of God, from that moment on, through all of his progression, dare we say, through puberty, through emotional developments, through understanding and learning how the world works, what the Bible teaches, his own calling in life, he was genuinely a man. And he was genuinely God. This is the incarnation. This is the glory of our greater high priest. That's why the whole book of Hebrews, dare I say just the whole New Testament, is devoted to just decrying and and declaring the glory of Jesus Christ, the holiness, the beauty, and the glory of Jesus Christ because he is unimaginably majestic. He's truly God in our nature. 
He was conceived without sin. He was not a son of Adam. God miraculously brought him to conception in his mother's womb. Therefore, he was free from original sin. And then he lived without sin as perfect God on earth for sinners to behold. That's why there was no consecration process for Jesus. Before he came and gave himself as a sacrifice for sin on that very first Easter, there was no consecration. He did not have to have sacrifices made on his behalf. He did not have to be touched with the blood of bulls and goats. He didn't have to devote himself to the altar or put on certain clothings because he was from his conception, in fact, from all eternity, but humanly from his conception without sin of any kind. This is Jesus. Representing God, not needing consecration, God in flesh. Hebrews 7.25 says, It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus, our great and perfect high priest. But, of course, we can go on even further and see how Jesus represented us in our human nature. He represented not just the Israelites. Mind this, Jesus did not just come down to represent the Jews, the people he shared DNA with. He did not just come down to represent uh, all the people who would eventually make themselves Israelites by coming under Moses' law and getting circumcised. That's not who he represented. He came to represent, in one sense, the entire humanity and their race, all of us. But he came to specifically and effectively represent literally anybody who believes in him. Not doers of the law, not holy people, not religious people, what the Bible calls believers. Just those, regardless of your background, you're believing. As long as you believe in Jesus, then you can say with full confidence, he is my high priest, and I have someone in heaven assuring me of eternal salvation. Jesus came to represent any sinner who comes by faith to him. He stands in the place of our need. You, you right now, you are a sinner. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you are guilty and condemned under God's law. In that sense, you are damned, but your need has been met by God. Your need has been graciously filled by the high priest of Jesus. That while you need a representative, Jesus is precisely that for you. Just as the high priest represented the Israelites to God, so Jesus represents believers to God. Just as the high priest had the names of the believers, written of the Israelites rather, written on his chest, and every single person in all of Israel can look somewhere on the high priest's chest or shoulders and see that their family name is somewhere there. Therefore, they can be confident, I'm being represented to God today. In his whole life, Jesus... Jesus had the names of all who will believe in him planted on his shoulders. He walked through life representing us, earning and living an entirely perfect life so that he can accredit and give a perfect life to your account when you believe. Jesus, in his death, there Jesus in his death, truly and surely carried the burden and the names of all he will save on his shoulders, not in pretty, polished, precious stones, but in splintered, heavy, jagged wood, Jesus walked up the hill carrying the cross upon which he would be crucified for our sin. 
Jesus died. And in his dying and in his burial there, he also represented us. Do you remember what we said about the Israelite? They could say, I've never been inside the tabernacle. But because my high priest represents me there, I'm there every day. I'm there in him. As long as he represented me, I know I'm, in, I'm spiritually in the tabernacle. So it is with Jesus. Don't ask me how I know this, but you're not dead. You're here. Yet, if you have believed in Jesus, I can tell you, you died 2,000 years ago under the wrath of God and the curse of sin, and you were buried in a Jerusalem grave. And three days later, you, in your high priest, you, represented by your high priest, in whose nail-graven hands are written your names, in whose heart pricked uh, uh, wounds and scars that, that the spear drove through into his heart. Right there is written your names by the fact that he representing you rose, you rose back to life three days later. And right now you sit in heaven, untouchable, unstainable, permanently, gloriously alive forevermore because of Jesus. So, by merit of his ascension and now ruling in heaven, we can sing the other verse of that very same song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, and as it goes on, behold him there, the risen lamb, my per your perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. He is a king of glory. He is also a king of grace for you, sinner. One with himself, united with him, communing with him, represented by him, since I'm in him spiritually, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid within Christ on high. My, uh, with Christ, my Savior and my God. This is what it means to have Jesus presented to mankind as a high priest. It means that every need is met. And it means that just as the high priest had it written on his forehead, Revelation picks up on this theme and applies it to heaven when all believers in God will have their, sin, their sins left behind, their pain and their suffering left behind, and, and on our names will be written, God's, on our foreheads will be written God's name. That you right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he doesn't look at your record. He doesn't consider your past. He doesn't look at your internet history. He doesn't ask your friends and your enemies what they think of you. He looks you face to face and sees written across your head, holy to the Lord, because you've been purchased by Jesus. So Christian, this is our amazing high priest, our representative, our mediator, our lawyer, you have a perfect assurance of salvation. Regardless of how young your faith is, two months, a week, maybe you've had some change within you in the last couple of minutes, two minutes, however long you've been believing in Jesus, so long as you have faith, irrespective of your own personal holiness, regardless of your personal holiness, you have a sure, eternal assurance in heaven because of your perfect Savior. Not you. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Behold him there, the risen lamb. And then for you non-Christians or those of you who aren't Christians yet, no matter how deep and crimson the stain of sin has permeated your being, no matter how checkered your past and evil your conduct, no matter how wicked your sins and horrible your law-breaking, no matter how deep your hatred for God has been, Jesus is represented and offered to you today as your one hope of salvation. There is no other hope. There is no other religion, no other path. God doesn't respect your faith, whatever it looks like. He doesn't acknowledge your own individual path to God. Those are bogus. All roads lead to hell. But there is a staircase leading straight to heaven, paved with the blood of Jesus. There is only one way to heaven. It is through Jesus. But he is not offered to you on conditions and ifs and buts and maybes. He is promised to you. As long as you believe in him, as long as you do not reject him, for you, your verse from the holy scriptures of God is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Turn away from being committed to them and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid for your sin, however costly it was, on the cross. He has represented you and now carries your name before the Father. And he longs to give you eternal life. Yield to him. Trust in him. Give your life up for him. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it is a glory and an honor and a wonder and a privilege of which we can never give enough thanks and for which we can never pay back. We can never tip the scales. We can, we can never give back the glory of what you are deserving. But, Father God, we come merely in, in sheer thankfulness. Thank you that in your love and your grace you decided to make alive those sinners who were in such deep rebellion. Thank you, Father, that in your mercy you did not give us what we deserved, but granted to us what we did not deserve, the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life. We thank you, Lord God, that you are patient with every single one of us. You have waited. You have waited until such a time as you would bring us to life in history, but there were years that you bore with our sinfulness without destroying us. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest of our confession, whose name we can merely utter and be ushered into the courts of heaven, whose name we can mention in our prayers and we will always be prioritized in our requests. We sinners, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, God and Savior, King and Judge, our High Priest for coming, for living so lowly, for suffering so deeply, for dying so disgustingly, so shamefully, and yet scorning all of that shame by your glorious and triumphant resurrection from the dead to seal for all who believe eternal, unchangeable, un undiminished life. Father God, we pray then, in light of all of this, that you would make those who love you live unto you, devoted to you, 
following after Christ, assured by his mercies, knowing that we have a throne of grace that we can come to whenever we have a need. But I pray, Lord God, also for those who are still far off, those who do not believe, those who are still in their sin, and therefore those who are still heading to hell. Father God, I pray that you would wake them from their ignorance, shock them out of their lethargy, uh, uh, pull them away from their self-denial and suppressing the truth and drive them to Jesus Christ. Drive them to the cross where they can behold all of the love, all of the grace and all of the mercy alongside all of the horrible wrath and justice of God being poured out and they can know that they can be forgiven in Jesus. Please God give new life this morning. We praise you and we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.